From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The term writer's block is a pretty well-known experience in which a person is afflicted by an inability to produce new work. And if you've had this experience, and especially if you're someone who makes your living as a creator, it can be pretty scary. I've been in that position quite a few times because as much as I enjoy hosting this program for Utah Public Radio, it's not how I make my living. Most of my daily life is dedicated to the craft of writing. And when I feel stuck, I start worrying about how I'm going to pay my mortgage. Now, I'm not a religious person, but having felt the desperation of being in this situation, I can definitely understand why someone might cry out to the heavens for help. And it turns out that people have been doing that for a very long time. Because while the term writer's block itself is a relatively modern notion, the experience of asking a higher power for help in the creative process has a very long story. Joyce Kincaid wrote about that story in her recently published book about the history, tools, technologies, and mythologies of writing. And in researching that book, something jumped out at her. Almost as soon as humans began working with written words, they began reaching out to deities that could help them with those words whenever times got tough. Kincaid is a professor of English at Utah State University, where she has directed writing programs and writing centers, and where she has long been focused on helping students develop research skills so that they can also investigate the history and developments that frame how we write in the modern world. Joyce Kincaid, welcome. Oh, Matthew, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Joyce, what what are you writing right now? You've been writing for a very long time, for, for decades. What are, you, what are you working on? Oh, Matthew, I have just started working on a really exciting project, and it actually grows out of this book I wrote about the history of writing. As you know, that covered 5,000 years of writing history. But I was in a fabulous printing museum in Lyon, France, and I came across this book about a woman, Charlotte Guillard, who had been a very important printer in the Renaissance in Paris. All right. Tell me about Charlotte, because now you've piqued my interest. Okay. How do you get to be a printer in Renaissance Europe? If you're a woman. Um, okay, so I've got a couple of guesses. Uh, some are kind of salacious, but uh, I'm almost afraid to answer with the salacious guess. So give me, the, give me the actual one. Well, you could be a daughter of a printer. Oh, that's learn. far less salacious. <laughs> but much better is to marry a printer and then bury him. <gasps> Wait, did she kill him? No, she did not kill either one of her two printer husbands. Wait, she had two printer husbands? Exactly. Is that just delicious? It really is, but I am suspicious now. I'm, I'm super suspicious that she, she killed the first one. We're sure, yes, that she didn't kill the first one? Oh, absolutely. And so this is really early on uh, in the history of printing. And so she just played... like. She and her husbands are just playing with new toys at this point. Well, yes, a little bit. So they owned a the first printing shop in Paris, Soleil Dor. 
the golden sun. And so they actually got it from an earlier printer in Paris. But Charlotte's great ability in Greek and Latin made her a very sought-after printer. She was precision itself. And so the printing press comes along, and now we have this really antiquated idea of having two boys in an entire village knowing how to read and how to write, and we're starting to democratize this art a little bit. Exactly, exactly. And so let's say that you wanted a book of hours, you know, the the Christian called a prayer uh, on, you know, an hourly kind of basis to, to say your prayers. Books like Bibles were actually chained to lecterns or to bookshelves to protect them. And now we're getting mass production of books. I'll just wrap up on Charlotte to say she's one of the first of a set of profiles I'm hoping to do on early women printers. So, for example, uh, other stories that I uncovered while I was writing my book was about uh, that the Bible in colonial America was first printed by a woman. Our Declaration of Independence was printed by a woman. And then in Utah, we have Elizabeth Taylor, who at the early 1900s was printing and publishing an African-American newspaper. Whoa. In Utah. In Utah. So you're just starting this new project. I mean, you've been teaching writing for 40 years at Utah State University. Obviously, you've been writing for longer than that. I assume that there have been times, and maybe even still now, when you have struggled to put words to paper. I think that's always a problem for a writer is how to begin. Even such prolific writers like John McPhee, writing in The New Yorker, who's award-winning, has said, oh, the block is real. Anne Patchett, an award-winning author, a novelist and also nonfiction, said that blocks are real. And are you, when you get blocked, are you the kind of writer who cries out to the heavens for help? Do you, do you beseech a higher power? I'm actually someone who goes bike riding when I'm blocked. And I find that that concentrated time, an hour or so, where I think about what's the entry point into my writing is really helpful. So I've not been too troubled with writer's block, but I have certainly seen that in my day. When you're on your bike, what is it that kind of releases you? Do you take, like, do you go on different routes? Do you go to exploring? Do you free your mind? Or when you're riding the bike, are you really thinking about this problem that you're trying to solve when you get blocked? Well, in the summer, especially when I live at Bear Lake, uh, I like to bike for an hour or two early in the morning. And if I've got on my to-do list a project, then I'm likely working through how I'm going to approach that problem while I'm out there pedaling. And just being in that glorious outdoors is, is very helpful, for example. So that's that's your strategy. You have written about other strategies and one of the most common strategies, and this is the reason why I asked you if you know you're the kind of writer who cries out to the heavens for help is is asking a higher power for help. And 
And this is something that goes back like 5,000 years to the, to the ancient Sumerians. Absolutely. And so 5,000 years ago, when Sumer started keeping its clay tablets, and we might even think about those as Excel spreadsheets, they started writing because their society got more complex. They needed to do accounting. They needed to do real estate. They needed to pass along recipes and the like. And so that created a, an incentive for schools to teach writing. And almost immediately upon this, we we begin to associate writing with a god, with a goddess, in fact. Talk, talk about Nisaba. Oh, Nisaba is absolutely wonderful. Of course, she is originally associated with grain and with accounting, but then she gets adopted by school children and other writers who want her, Nisaba to help them with their writing. So I have a few hymns to Nisaba that I included in my book, and one of them says that the scribe who does not neglect his or her work, who perfectly executes uh, and incises Nisaba the lady will give perceptiveness of him and she will bestow on him very be- beautiful handwriting, the alluring feature of the scribal art. So then we have an Egyptian counterpart, Shashat, and there are characters from Chinese legend that are associated with writing. And in India, there's the elephant-headed god Ganesha, who's very much associated with writer's block as the remover of big obstacles. Everywhere that you looked while you were writing this book, you found gods and goddesses and legendary figures who were associated, like Nisaba, way back when, 5,000 years ago, with not just with writing, but with specifically with the act of helping writers in their times of need. When you came upon that, when you started to make those connections, did did you go, aha, this is, there's something here. That's exactly right, Matthew, is that I, it just blew me away when I figured it out. And I said, wait a second. And, and I, I discovered Seshat first among the gods. And she was someone I really looked to when I was traveling in Egypt, because she has this marvelous papyrus headdress that makes her stand out. And then, of course, she's got a, a stele, a, a pen in her hand as well. When did you say not only, oh, I've I've come upon something here and this is really interesting, but I want to write about it. I want to make it the central feature or this, one of the main features in my book. Oh, well, it's, it has its own chapter. And so as soon as I figured out the gods and goddesses from ancient or classical times, I, I thought, well, who else is there? And I think we all know about the muses and how that is the term we look at uh, in terms of uh, who is going to inspire us or intercede on our behalf. And I love the story of the muses that they're the nine sisters who are the result of a torrid nine night affair among the gods. <laughs> this would have been uh, Zeus and Nemosine, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, then I started looking for patron saints. 
And my gosh, there there must have been 30 patron saints who have something to do with writing. And it could be a patron saint of bookbinding, a patron saint of printers, uh, a patron saint of the book. So it was just an extraordinary moment when that all clicked for me. And in many of these cases, you're finding that these deities or legendary figures um, are there to help writers. And the the idea, the, the implied idea here is that we as writers have to tap into something, some wellspring in order to do what we do. And sometimes, as has been my experience, as has been your experience, that the well runs dry and we can't continue without assistance. Well, certainly, I think we do need some kind of assistance. A lot of times for me, that's more reading to refresh or just to go back over what I've written already and think, what have I left out? I I know when I was writing this book, I had this kind of hit my head moment, you know, where I slapped my forehead and said, I haven't done anything with erasers. And but you ended up you ended up writing extensively about erasers in this book though. Yeah, or ink. You know, and I it's it's this issue of what we take for granted that is right there in front of our faces. But writing has become so ubiquitous for us, we don't even give it a second thought. And that's really what my book is about, is about seeing what we see all the time in a new way. One of the things that I think we don't give a second thought to in general is this idea that writers show up and they write and, you know, that, you know, great writers are always inspired. And that's, you know, that's the thing that makes a great writer great. great. But I know you're a fan of something that Stephen King once wrote about writing, uh, something that I've always believed as well. He wrote, the amateurs sit and wait for inspiration and the rest of us just get up and go to work. And I, I think it's important to note that King isn't really saying that he doesn't get blocked. Um, in fact, famously, he really struggled at times when he was writing The Stand. But I think that King's words there really go hand in hand with this other idea that also can be traced back to ancient Greece, which is that the gods help those who help themselves. Well, that's certainly what Roger Ebert also said. The muse visits during the act of creation, not before. Don't wait for her. Start alone. I don't think it's Flannery O'Connor who says, you just need to put the butt in the chair. I think my my favorite contemporary uh, famous person who has reflected on this is Chris Rock, who uh, recalled when he was young and before he was a very successful comedian and actor that his car would break down a lot. And if he stood there trying to flag someone down, nobody would come to help. But if he got out and started pushing his own car, always someone would get out of their cars and help him push. So... Well, what do you think? Do you think like the muses work in that same way? Do you think they, they are more likely to come upon us if if we're putting in the work? Well, I think that uh, it's important for us to start and 
see what comes along in inspiration. But we need to remember that these are confidence builders for writers. If they're looking for divine inspiration, uh, if they're seeking help through that. So let's just take like a, a baseball pitcher who has a ritual to go through, and then I can pitch. So writers may have rituals that they go through whether that's asking the, the God to be with me as I write, or if it's fingering some crystals or a talisman that is said to give you confidence as a writer. Well, and you actually discovered quite a few of these in like modern marketplaces, modern online marketplaces, like crystals and stones and talismans that are are specifically marketed to writers as something that will unlock your creativity and unlock the words that are stuck. Well, exactly. And in fact, one of my students demonstrated this for me in a writing class, uh, getting ready to write a big paper. And she said, oh, well, I have anxiety and major writer's block and feel I feel a lot of pressure. Of course, this is self-induced pressure. I feel like pressure to produce a great piece. She puts together a bag of three crystals looking to repel negative energy and replace it with creativity. And so I'm all for whatever works for a writer to get them started on the page. Okay, so let's talk about this maybe different sort of muse, modern sort of muse. As you just said, you're all about this. Let's, let's talk about chat GPT. You you wrote in a, a lot in your book about how different writing instruments from like quills to pencils to pens and typewriters and computers have impacted the craft of writing. And we've been talking here today about how, you know, ideas about deities and, and you know, like praying to deities or asking for help from muses uh, or, you know, fingering a crystal can help. How does AI fit into this? Does it have a role in as a tool for... A, you know, alleviating a writer's anxiety and, and writer's block? You know, I've talked to my students quite a bit about this in the history of writing, and they've been very informative for me. Uh, for example, uh, we were designing book plates. Uh, so we did a whole look at why people put book plates to own a book uh, in, in their personal library, the Ex Libris book plates. And some of them went to AI and created a book plate saying, I want a, a blue book plate. I want it to have a bowl and I want to have my name on it. And there, so the art AI produced that. But I can also see where someone might say, oh, I want to uh, look at this theme in Ann Patchett's work and give a few instances. And the AI comes up with uh, those notes or essay, let's say, and perhaps there's something that the student hadn't looked at uh, or thought about before that might be inspiring to them where they go off now and do their own version of that paper. I like the fact that your first response to this was not heck and hellfire and the sky is falling and chat GPT is going to ruin writing as we know it. We've got to use everything we can. 
Uh, how is this going to help us? We, well, I think we're already seeing, for example, that physicians are finding that they can get a report written, let's say, on a patient by inputting a few choice descriptors. Joyce, I asked you earlier what you're writing. Where are you writing right now? This is such an important thing for writers, almost as important as a muse. In fact, spaces can be muses. What's the place where the muses find you the most? Well, I'm standing up um, at a at a heightened uh, computer to do that. I, I am not like Emma Thompson or Stephen King, who thinks the best word processor is a fountain pen and a legal pad. I am all digital. Do you... Do you have things that you told me about bike riding earlier? Do you have things that you have to do, you know, in order to kind of get started for the day? Do you have a drink that you drink? Is there a place that you set it on your desk? Is is there a time of day that this needs to happen for you? I'm very much a morning person, I would say. And uh, what my best incentive is a to-do list, and, and I have to confess I'm a little compulsive, so my to-do list is handwritten, and I take enormous pleasure out of crossing through something. Has there ever been, and I know you told me earlier you, you were blessed to not have experienced too much writer's block, but has there ever been a time where you've had an item on that to-do list and that's related to your writing that you just can't shake for a, a long period of time? Well, at the moment, I'm actually putting off working on a chapter that I had editorial comments on it. And it turns out that I put the, the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> the chapter. So I was writing about undergraduate research and I'm supposed to be writing about co-authorship, but I led with undergraduate research. And now I've got to go back and reframe the entire chapter for that. And so that's something I'm not exactly looking forward to. And I have crossed off every other thing until that one. And so that's that's a form of block, right? Like you're you're sort of avoiding, do, you know you can do it. I mean, you it's not like you're having a crisis of confidence right now. This is like, you don't really want to do it because for whatever reason, right? Exactly. I like the first version a lot, <laughs> but I, at some point I'm going to acquiesce and say, Oh, these editors are right. I, I need to change that. But one of the real uh, turning points I think in my own writing life is, is as a, as a writing studies teacher and theorist was when I learned that, Procrastination can be a really good act. And I was really helped a lot in learning that the, a better term for that is incubation. But I, I think there's a difference, though, right? Like, like incubation is an active process. There's, you know, I mean, if you even think about the metaphor, right, there's like, there's a warming that is happening. There's, there's a loving custodialship of the idea that you're working with. And procrastination is like, I'm not thinking about it at all. I suppose that that could be right. Uh, I think that I was a procrastinator earlier on. And now because I've got my list in my 
in front of my face uh, consistently, I, I'm mulling over ideas as as well there. How much longer will you be working on this current project about women printers in history? I think it's, if I were to look at an average of how long it takes to do a book, it's about a five-year process. That leaves a lot of time for bike rides. It does, to stay in shape, because the other good thing about um, uh, writing is about maintaining some balance. So uh, I look at writing as, writers as having a life of the mind, and so to to be exercising and thinking about projects is is really a, a wonderful double positive. That's Joyce Kincaid. She's a professor of English at Utah State University and the author of a writing studies primer, which was the basis for a widely shared piece she wrote last year for the conversation about the 5,000-year history of writer's block. Joyce Kincaid, thank you. Oh, thank you, Matthew. It's been so wonderful to chat with you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, well, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.